Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as you do, when you think about evangelism, what, what comes to your mind? Like, what is the, the very first thing that comes to your mind? It may be a multitude of things that come to your mind when you think about evangelism. For some, it, it may be an evangelist. Maybe it's like a, a Billy Graham. Um, for others, it may be an event or a, a program. Um, depending on where you're from in, in, the, in the country or the world, um, it may be that you remember revival meetings and uh, big tents being put up and, and those type of things. Maybe it's someone coming and it's the fear of someone knocking at your door. Uh, and that's what you think of when you think of evangelism. Or maybe it's a sharing the gospel one-on-one or inviting somebody to church. It could be a whole, whole host of a whole number of things. But how many, when we think of evangelism, that we think about beholding the glory of God. Beholding the glory of God. I dare say that probably not many, when we think of evangelism, are, are thinking about beholding the glory of God, but we should. So over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the what, the why, and the how when it comes to evangelism, to, to sharing our faith. And we've defined evangelism as the compassionate sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people and the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing them to Christ as Savior and Lord that they in turn might share him with others. And today, as we we close this series, I I want to bring us back again to the why. Why we, we share the gospel. Like, really, why are we to share the gospel? Why do we want people to believe the good news of the gospel? Think about it for a moment. Why? And, and yes, it's because we want them to be saved. And yes, it's because we, we want them to go to heaven when they die. But it's bigger than that. At least I hope we see it as as bigger than that. It's it's more than just a change in destination in the end. We're saved. And others are saved by God for the glory of God. And as such, we're able, being saved by God for the glory of God, we're able to behold the glory of God and be the vessels that God uses to open the spiritually blind eyes and hearts to behold this glory. So what I want to do today is return to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church that we have seen in, in great conflict, a church that is being influenced by false teaching and false teachers who are, are saying, hey, Paul should not be believed. Don't believe anything Paul's saying. So Paul, in one sense, he's writing this letter to defend himself. But more importantly, he's writing this letter to defend the gospel. And the reason he's writing to defend himself is because him being defamed is maligning the gospel. He wants to defend the truth of the gospel because Paul knows that a distorted gospel, a false gospel, it does not save. It doesn't allow people to behold the glory of God. So let's pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now in this set of verses, there is a prevailing question that is at hand. The question is, how how are the blinded minds of unbelievers who are unable to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ ever able to see him for who he is, the image of, of God? How? How are they able to see God, blinded eyes, able to see God for, for who he is? Paul telling us in verse 3 that the gospel is veiled. It is unable to, to be seen by those who are perishing. So that, that's the prevailing question that we have throughout this text. It's right here before us. And to answer this question, we need to, to heed the very first word in verse 1. What is the very first word in verse 1? Therefore. And anytime we see the word therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? Because what is, he's making the argument here is based upon everything that has come before. And so we say, okay, what is the therefore, therefore? And we look back to beginning in chapter 2, verse 15. And this is where I'd encourage you to, to follow along in the text. These verses will not be on the screen. Um, what will be on the screen is, is the points of the sermon. And this is where for those of you who, who like to take notes, uh, for those of you who like outlines and like points, welcome to Disney World of points today. Because today we have a 17-point sermon. And some of you are like, what? <laughs> like, if, like for guests who are coming for the first time, you're like, what? <laughs> like what church should I come to with 17 points? Well, you know, I decided to go all out today. But I honestly... Uh, they're going to help us break down the what, the why, and the how when it comes to evangelism. And it's going to give us an outline of just Paul's argument as we make our way through the text. And I promise we're going to do so rapidly. The longest two points are going to be the first two. All right? So let's dive right in. First, there are two types of people in the world. And this is repetitive. We've talked about this already. Two types of people in the world. Chapter 2, verse 15 tells us there are those who are being saved... And there are those who are perishing. So that means that everyone that we know, everyone that we encounter is either being saved from sin and the judgment they deserve, or they are perishing. That is, they are remaining in their sin and will receive the eternal judgment that they deserve. And it's here where someone will say, Jeremy, I'm confused. I thought I was saved. So what does it mean here by saying being saved? And to that question, if it's your question, I say great question, great question. And and the answer is, if you are a believer, you have been saved. 
It's already happened. You are saved. You have been born again. You have been declared right before God. You are in this very moment a child of God. Rejoice in that. That cannot change. But at the same time, you are being saved because you have not yet departed from this world and been glorified. You still sin, right? We all still sin. And we experience the effects of sin. We experience the effects of a fallen world. You're you're still in the process, if you are a Christian, of being sanctified. That is conformed and transformed into the image of of God and the likeness of Christ. See, what we need to understand is that salvation is more than an end-of-life destination. That's not just the goal. It's the renewing of a fallen world, what's broken being made new, renewed. It's beholding the glory of God now and ultimately forever and ever and ever beholding the glory of God. That's why the the great commission, the commission that, that Christ gives his disciples is not go and make converts. The commission that he gives the disciples is go therefore and make disciples. Go make disciples. We want them to be able to behold the glory of God. But for the one who is perishing, they remain dead in their sin. They're continually being formed into the image of the fallen world of which they live. So everyone here and everywhere, is either being saved or perishing. There is no in-between. So first and foremost, when it comes to application, and we always want application of, Pastor, how does this text apply to me? First and foremost point of application, we need to understand who are we? Are we being saved or are we perishing? And what are we basing our evidence on? And then if we are being saved, then we need to realize too, we are the aroma of Christ. So again, in chapter two, verse 15, Paul says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And in understanding this passage, Because I really wanted to dive in and wrestle with, okay, what is he talking about here? And understanding this passage, I find great help from from the Greek Old Testament that is known as the Septuagint. Now, just curiosity, no, no, no skin off anybody's back here, but how many of you have heard of or familiar with what the Septuagint is? Right? So about half the room or so understand Septuagint, others are not, no, no big deal. Remember that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. So you've got three different languages being used to, to write out the Old and New Testament. And just like we have English translations of the Old and New Testaments, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that is known as the Septuagint, dating all the way back to the, the 3rd century BC. So like really old, like before Christ old. And what we find is the words that are used there in Greek are are for aroma and for fragrance are often used to refer to the aroma of a sacrifice pleasing to God. So we think of the words aroma and fragrance in this text. You can see this as an aroma, a fragrance, a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And of course, who is the primary aroma of a sacrifice that is pleasing to God? 
Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Jesus is this primary sacrifice that is pleasing to God. But now think about Paul. Think about his context. Think about his life. What's Paul doing with his life? He's offering his entire life as a living sacrifice to God. His entire life is a living sacrifice. So think Colossians 1, chapter 24. I'm gonna give you a second to flip over. It's New Testament. Keep your finger where you're at. New Testament, go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we're gonna find Colossians there. Colossians chapter one, Bible drill. Paul saying, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Who's your, who's your sake? It's the church there in Colossae. Paul's saying, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister. Now I read this text and the natural question is, what in the world is Paul talking about? Like what is he talking about? What's lacking from Christ's suffering and affliction. What's he talking about here? And the answer is nothing is lacking. But the hatred for Christ, the hatred for Christ and the gospel was so severe that if they could have punished Christ further, they would have. We need to understand that the cross was not enough to satisfy the hatred that they had for for Christ. If they could have crucified him again, they would have, but they can't. But remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus. We looked at it last week. What did he say at Paul's conversion? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. What's Jesus doing there? He's intimately tying the persecution of the church to the persecution of himself, the persecution of Christ. So what we see here in this text today, here in 2 Corinthians, is that Paul's suffering our suffering for the sake of the gospel. I'm not talking about you had a bad day. I'm not talking about like you had a flat tire or things aren't going well at home, but like suffering for the sake of the gospel can be seen as an extension of Christ's suffering and death in the world. Now, not for the purpose of atoning, not at all. That was completed 100% at the cross, but the continued hatred of Christ and the gospel. Because some are going to hear our message that we're going to proclaim. They're going to hear the message and they're going to hate it. They're not going to just be indifferent to it. They are going to hate it. They will not believe it. It's a fragrance from death to death. And yet there are others who are going to receive it like a what? A sweet aroma. They're going to hear the gospel and they're going to receive it like a sweet aroma. A fragrance from life to, to life. And we who are being saved, we are to be this aroma. We are to be this aroma for a lost and dying world. But no matter how eloquent our words or how vast our intellect, we must remember no one is sufficient for the work of gospel ministry. That's number three. No one is sufficient for the work of gospel ministry. So after Paul says, we are an aroma of Christ to God, He follows this with a rhetorical question. Who is sufficient for these things? The answer, no one. 
No one is sufficient for the work of, the, of gospel ministry through our own abilities or intellect. No one is capable of being this aroma in their own strength. If this were so, Paul would have been completely sufficient in and of himself, for he was brilliant. He knew the scriptures inside and out. He knew them better than anyone of his day or just as well as anyone of his day. He had incredible oratory skills, but he still knew that he was not sufficient in any way to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. He could not do it. Neither are we. Neither are we. But what are we prone to do, church? What are we prone to do despite our insufficiency? We are prone to peddle and proclaim a message that finds its sufficiency in human ability. If we just do this, maybe more people will believe. If we just do this, then maybe we'll have better results. And I'm not saying there's not reason to critique our methods, but we do not compromise the message. That's what the false teachers are, are doing. Not Paul, not us. No, our sufficiency, number four, is from God. And that's where our confidence lies. Chapter three, verse five. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Think about that. Take the most brilliant person in the world, the greatest orator, the most skilled apologist the world has ever known. Did they create everything out of nothing? No. Are they in this moment, are we in this moment, holding the world together, creation together, the universe together by the word of our power? No. Who is our great God? And it's in him that our sufficiency in our evangelism is found. We aren't reliant on our abilities or our intellect in, in any way, but 100% on the sufficiency of God, both in the delivery and in the results. And in realizing that our sufficiency is 100% from God, we therefore are to realize we are sufficient ministers of the new covenant. Number five, that's verse, in verse six where Paul says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, the question here is, what's the letter? What's the letter that Paul is referring to? It's the law, the letter of the law. And why does the law kill? Because it announces God's will, a will of absolute and complete perfection without granting the power to keep the law with absolute perfection. So the, what the law does is it says, okay, here's the expectation. Here's the bar that you have to, to cross. This is how you are supposed to live in order to be right before God. But what it does is it reveals that we can never meet the expectation. There's nothing we can do. So then what does that reveal about us when we cannot meet the expectation? It reveals that we are lawbreakers. Everyone who breaks the law is a lawbreaker. And who are the lawbreakers? All of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those who break God's laws are lawbreakers and deserving of God's judgment. Therefore, our sin alienates us from God and alienates God from us. That's what the law is revealing. That's the old covenant. 
That's what Moses was called to bring at the burning bush. Lucky Moses, right? Essentially, Moses is bringing just enough revelation to to make it clear that there is nothing that we can do to, to save ourselves. We can never be good enough to reconcile ourselves to God. But while the letter of the law kills, what does the Spirit give? Life. The Spirit brings, gives life. How? The Spirit gives life because the Spirit actually changes the human heart. It doesn't leave us where we were. It changes us from the inside out, which does what? It enables believers, God's people, to, com- to keep God's commands. And this is the message that Paul was called to, to deliver on the road to Damascus. We see Moses being called to the burning bush. We see Paul being called on the road to Damascus to deliver this message. And it's this message that we have been called to deliver if we are those who are being saved. In receiving the Spirit, we who are in Christ are made sufficient ministers of a new covenant. Number six, since we have such hope, we are very bold. And I don't know about you, but I need boldness when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. Because so many things in this world are trying to to tempt and to sway and to move us from from, from being bold with a gospel message, to, to placate and to pacify and to soften down and to water down the message. Paul here pointing us back to to Moses who is in verse 13. He would put a a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. See, when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, he asked to see God's glory. God, I wanna wanna see your glory. Really, he's wanting to see God face to face. And, And how does God respond here? Like, nope paraphrasing here nope because if you do you will die can't do that but here's what I'm going to do I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass it by you and he does he passes by him and all Moses is able to see is really the backside of God but it's just enough to see when Moses comes down that mountain his face is shining with the glory of God it's shining with the glory of God. There's no mistaking that he has met with God. So he covered his face with, with a veil. And he likely kept covering his face with the, the veil to keep the Israelites from seeing that this glory was gradually fading. It wasn't staying the way that it was. What the fading was doing was signifying the temporary nature of the old covenant. A covenant that could not save. It was temporary could and can point to the need of salvation, which is its purpose, but it cannot save. But who can? The Spirit can. The new covenant saves. It, does, it, it changes lives. It doesn't leave us where we were. It changes us. It not only gives us the power then to, to keep the law, even when we fail and Let's be honest, we will fail, we have failed, we will continue to fail. We are then sustained by the work of the Spirit in our life and the intercession of Christ that is taking place daily for us, Christ himself praying for us to continue to persevere and continue in the faith. See, we don't lose our salvation based upon any of our efforts. We don't lose our salvation because Christ is working in us and praying for us and the Spirit is working in us in this new life. And that's where our boldness is to come from. 
with understanding this knowledge and this understanding. But even so, number seven, some minds will be hardened. Paul saying in verse 14, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, and by they, he's referring to, to the Jewish people, the same veil remains unlifted. Meaning they're blind to the truth of the gospel. They're blind to the fact that all scripture is pointing to Jesus. It's there. Like plain as day there, right before them, but they can't see it. Likely true of some gathered here today as well. Why? Why can they not see it? Why? Because only through Christ is it taken away, as the text says. So whenever they hear Moses read, whenever they hear the the Old Testament read, whenever they hear the law and the prophets, there's a veil. They can't see. It doesn't make sense. They can't see what's right before them. And that can't be incredibly, incredibly heartbreaking and frustrating as we evangelize. We're sharing the gospel with those we love. We're sharing the gospel with those that we encounter. And we're we're putting it before them as plain as day to us. We see in the scripture, like, this is what it says. And they do not see it. And we're like, why? How can you not see it? And there seems to be nothing that we can do to convince them. So what do we do in those moments? We keep calling them to turn to the Lord. Number eight, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Which then naturally brings the question again of how. How does one go from being spiritually blind and no desire to follow Christ to turning to the Lord? And we're going to get there in a minute because that's where Paul is, is going. That's where he's heading. But here's the reality. The veil can be removed. This is huge, church. The veil can be removed. The blindness can be taken away. And when it's removed, guess what? We can see the unfading glory of God. We can have freedom, freedom from the condemnation of the law. Verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what church? Freedom, there's freedom. So no more veil, no more blindness, no. We who turn to the Lord with unveiled face, guess what? Number nine, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. Like just think about that. We who were walking in complete opposition and rebellion to God, dead in our sin, are now able with unveiled face to behold the glory of God. And one day we will stand before him face to face. Behold the glory of God. Church, it's okay to get excited about this. It is okay to get excited that we get to behold the glory of God. And frankly, if there is no excitement, there's no welling up of emotion of rejoicing over this, then you've got to do a heart check. You have to check here. Am I, am I seeing Christ for who he is? Number 10, we are being transformed in the image of Christ. We're not even done yet. Yes, we're going to behold the glory of God, but we are being transformed now into the image of Christ. And this is the connection with being saved. 
It's the already, but not yet, already saved, but not yet sinless and glorified. But we are currently being transformed, which is the indication of what? Of a process. It's not instantaneous. And that's where I'm like, oh, I wish it was instantaneous. Like, bring it now. I don't want this now. But it's not. Sanctification lasting from the moment we come to faith in Christ to, to the moment we die in every believer. And in this process, what was distorted in the fall is being renewed again in everyone who believes. Not just some, but everyone who believes. We're being transformed into the image of God. And this again is a promise for every believer which is another huge point of application because where sanctification is not evident, whether it's in your life or the life of someone that you love, it is great cause for concern. Again, the Bible knows nothing of salvation without life transformation. Knows nothing of praying a prayer or being baptized and then not growing in Christ-likeness, not growing in a love for God and the things of God. The Bible knows nothing of this. And if that is you or, or someone you love, you need to understand that if that is your assurance of something you did way back when and there's no evidence of sanctification in your life, you are resting in a false assurance of your salvation. But this brings us back to the therefore. Where we started at the very beginning, the therefore. And we asked, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, everything we just looked at is what the therefore is there for. And now we're moving forward. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Number 11, we do not lose heart. Now, does that mean that we won't have times of discouragement? No. We will most definitely have those times of discouragement. They will come more often than we like. They will come in ways that we don't expect. They will come from avenues that we are not expecting but when we reflect upon the gospel, when we reflect upon the hope that is found in the new covenant, the work the Spirit is doing in our life, the work that the Spirit is doing through the preaching and the proclaiming of the gospel, the sufficiency of God in all things, our ability to behold the glory of God. <laughs> Again, we do not lose heart. Why? Because we know how this ends. We know how this ends. But in the immediate, as we evangelize, we must renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. That's number 12. And this is for both life and evangelism. There's repentance that is involved in following Christ. There can be no secret life of shame in the life of a believer. There isn't a church life and a home life, a public life and a private life. We're renouncing anything and everything that would bring shame to Christ and the gospel that we claim to believe. And in regards to, to, to teaching and sharing and proclaiming the gospel, we are not in this for financial gain or personal advancement. We're not in this for, for any of those things. No, our motives are to be pure and holy which is another reason I utterly despise the prosperity gospel and what it's producing. But then in direct connection, number 13, 
We refuse to practice cunning or, or, or tamper with God's word. Meaning faithful evangelism requires no manipulation, no softening of the message, or attempting to make it more palatable or less offensive to our audience to get them to respond the way we like. And we're tempted to, to get results and to get numbers in a world that wants big and famous and fast. We're tempted to manipulate and distort and to take corners here and there, and we must not. We take God's word and we proclaim God's word. That's what we do. But Jeremy, that's not politically correct. That's not sensitive to the time of which we're living. You're right, no, it's not. At least it's not sensitive to the world's definition of sensitive. But number 14, we present the truth. We present the truth. We keep presenting the truth. We don't tell our listeners what they want to hear. We tell them what they need to hear. There are nights in our home, like it seems to be like click over around the four o'clock in the afternoon, like feeding a gremlin after midnight time, uh, uh, like feeding a gremlin at that point, that, that spot, that four o'clock, we call it the witching hour, that, that grace is not connecting in our home. And, and I'm meaning with my son. I'm, I'm not going to pick on my wife in this moment in time, or she's not going to pick on me in this moment in time. I've, I'm smart enough not to do that, right? But there's this spot in, in our time around that four o'clock time where grace is just not connecting. We love grace. We, we preach grace. We want to model grace in our home. But for grace to be appreciated, the law needs to be made known. And there are nights when the law has to be made known. We have to be able to make sure that the law is understood. And the church, church, that is an essential part of proclaiming the gospel. Making sure that the law is understood. That there is a lawgiver and we have broken his law. So even when in our home, I'm able to point one to I'm the lawgiver in the home. Mommy's the lawgiver in the home. You have broken the law and there will be punishment. But that way that is also an opportunity for it to happen is to bring the offender into my lap and then to be able to teach and to proclaim the gospel in this moment to point to the truth of what he deserves. Not only the punishment at home, but the punishment for offending and sinning against God. As a result, we stand before him condemned, deserving of judgment, deserving of death. That's the truth. That's our reality, which makes the grace, the good news of the gospel that much sweeter. That God being rich in mercy sent his son to live and to die as our substitute. To not only to live a life of complete obedience, but to receive our punishment for us. And after three days in the grave, he rose victorious. And so will we who are in Christ. And what do we do? We call people to believe and turn to the gospel. And we keep calling them to believe and turn to the gospel. And sometimes right now in our home and different places, in your homes and conversations from we've had with you, there are times where it's like the veil is there. 
It is not being able to be overcome. But what do we do? We keep preaching Christ. Some will be blinded to the truth. Number 15, they're going to hear, but they're not going to believe. They'll see, but not perceive. To them, the gospel is veiled. It makes no sense. As Paul says in verse three, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And for some, this blindness will never lift. And for others, by the grace of God, it will. But those are answers that we don't have. As we've discussed the parable of the soils, we're seed sowers, not soil testers. We, we sow the seed, we throw it out, we cast it out. We don't go out and say, ah, I think the soil may be good over here or maybe better over here. We just sow the seed, we share the gospel. We proclaim Christ, number 16. That's what Paul says in verse five. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, we proclaim Christ. We let light shine out of the darkness. So while Moses' shining face was, was covered with a veil, we let the light of Christ shine forth from our life in both word and in deed. And we trust the sufficiency of God to carry out the work and the will of God through the power of God, which is what the proclaiming of the gospel. We remember that the God who created the light in the world, in the universe, brought it forth with his word, spoke it into existence does the same kind of thing in the hearts of blind sinners like us when the gospel is heard. And as we do this, we remember, number 17, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what's this treasure? It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the encouragement is, we have this treasure in jars of clay, the jars of clay being us. We are the jars of clay. We aren't gold, we aren't silver, we aren't diamonds and rich treasure, no, we are clay. We are fragile clay. And in these jars of clay is the treasure, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Which means when you feel ill-equipped to share this treasure. It should be like all the time, feeling ill-equipped to share this treasure, to, to be this light. You're actually in those moments closer to the truth than the person who feels all wise and equipped and self-sufficient. See, remembering that we are jars of clay while at the same time possessing the greatest treasure of all time brings into perspective the humble reality that we plant we even water. We do everything we can. But it is God who gives the growth. And it's our, in our faithful weakness, in our insufficiency, we proclaim Christ to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And it's through, through this that people from every walk of life have the veil lifted and are able to behold 
the glory of God. And that's the reason for this series. That's the reason for this series. We want all people to behold the glory of God. And the only way it is possible is for them to, to hear and to believe the gospel, which means someone has to share it with them. And that someone, those someones are us. We who are being saved are to share the good news of the gospel with those who are perishing and to call them to turn to God. So I hope and I pray that this series has, has been beneficial. Uh, definitely plenty more for us to discuss and to cover. We have numerous resources in our book stall that's right out there, simply available for a donation that can help you continue to grow in both knowledge and ability. But as we go today, I encourage you, encourage us all to remember that we are jars of clay. Jars of clay carrying the greatest treasure the world has ever known. And with unveiled face, we are able to behold the glory of God, which means we can tell others how they can behold the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we prepare to scatter from this place and enter back out into a perishing world, we pray that we who are being saved will boldly, faithfully, and compassionately share and proclaim the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. May we be proclaimers of the truth both near and far, sowing seed throughout the world, watering that seed and trusting you as you've promised to give the growth. And for those gathered here today, I, I pray that the gospel has, has landed on good soil May the veil be lifted and let us behold your great glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.